Well, friends, do we have a treat for you. I have for a long time wanted to get Corey Farr on the show, and he lives in Lebanon. His time is very different, and he is busy with teaching young people English at a school, a residential school in Lebanon. These are Syrian refugees, and alongside of all that, he does a great little podcast called A Christian Reads the Tao Te Ching. You can find his work uh, and its poetry and music and reflection. It's fantastic stuff at coreyfar.com, C-O-R-E-Y-F-A-R-R.com. We'll talk more about him and why the Tao Te Ching has been helpful in his life. But most importantly, this is where Stacy and I get an opportunity to talk to somebody that's kind of rare in our world. That is somebody who is committed to the teachings of Jesus and also fascinated and uh, enriched by Lao Tzu. And we're going to find out how that fits also with some of the questions we care about related to education, religious education, indoctrination, and the Wu way of teaching rascals that are in fifth grade. Thanks for being with us. Come along for the ride. Let's go. Right. I've been waiting for this for a long time. I really am so glad, uh, Corey, that you've joined us. We are here with Corey Farr. We are recording uh, with somebody who is not even in the country. You're in, you're in Lebanon. Yes. What is, what's Lebanon like on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas, which is also your birthday? Happy birthday, man. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my birthday is the 27th. So uh, he's ahead of it's, us. It's um, today for me, tomorrow for you. Yeah. Yes. So I not, see what's going on. I'm not quite 30 in the Western hemisphere. Yet. <laughs> but what does that mean? Right. I mean, like the, we're seeing we're seeing the death of stars five million la- years later or something. Yeah. You know, it's uh, um, but really I, I want to start out by saying in one of the themes that we're, we're doing in the new year, kind of going through Christmas is we were talking about how how hard it was. Uh, our oldest son is out of the house now and he he had his first Christmas without us yeah. and we didn't have anybody we didn't have dinner with anybody. Um, we had this Christmas middle of the day and we live on campus. I kind of, we'll talk about your story, but we live on a college campus, uh, originally with international students. Um, now with the honors, uh, living learning community, everyone's gone except for one Saudi student. Um, and we had, uh, we had a nice, uh, like kind of, uh, Christmas mid- midday meal. And we were just talking about, you know, um, halal, we were talking about, uh, evangelical halal being, um, a Chick-fil-A, we were talking about the ethics of food and all this stuff. But, um, uh, but that said on a, on a, you know, that kind of run of Christmas and into new years, what's it like in Lebanon when you're out and about? I mean, obviously this is a different year. Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of out and about for us in the country right now. Um, actually, yeah. interestingly, tonight was my first time. We've been on lockdown. So I live, let me explain first. I live on campus at an orphanage uh, and a school for Syrian refugees and, and Syrian orphans. Um, and so we've got 25 boys who live here. And then we've got about 120 kids, I think, in the school, grades K through six. And I teach grade four English. Um, and I absolutely love it. But given the fact that we're kind of in a high risk environment and 
most of our students are refugees who wouldn't have access to healthcare if they were to contract the virus. Uh, we've been pretty much on hardcore lockdown here mm. um, since March. Now, I was in the States for two months over the summer. Um, and I had a couple weeks during the summer when the boys had gone to be with their families where I was able to get out. But other than that, I have not been able to leave the campus here. Uh, so to be honest, I can't tell you a whole lot of what's going on in the rest of the country. Um, but I know that tonight I was able to get out and get down to the city because the boys are now gone for Christmas break as well. Mm. So we have a couple weeks of freedom to get out and um, it's dead. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with Lebanon, um, 15 months ago, we had a revolution start, nonviolent one, but um, seeking total like to, to basically get a completely new government because it's yeah. one of the most corrupt governments in the world. Mm. So we're now going on 15 months without a functioning government. It was barely functioning before, but, um, and then there was, so, you know, we've had economic collapse and then the pandemic hit. And then uh, I'm sure, hopefully you guys remember from the news uh, this past summer, the, the huge explosion that kind of, yeah was in the headlines everywhere. We're still, the, st the city's still reeling from that. I mean, it happened right near all the, the commercial and the mm. touristy areas. So I went down to my favorite coffee shop in one of those areas and uh, it's just dead. There was yeah. like five of us in this, in this big coffee shop, restaurant, bar, and uh, it's kind of bleak. Um, yeah. The country is literally starving. I mean, food prices have doubled and the currency has deflated by 600%. So it's, it's a very, it's not the most joyous of Christmases, but uh, seeing people do what they can to make the best of it has been, um, I want to say inspiring, but that feels kind of pandering. So yeah. it's just, I think I know the word you're talking about. Right. There is that, there is that beauty, that poignant beauty. I mean, you're, you're right there. I mean, I, I was going to get into a little bit more of this idea. I think I can say it briefly that that so we were thinking about what is our true family that's one of the things we're talking about we're we're over the next several weeks with interviews and um and who and who are our friends you know so i don't want to be too uh you know intense here for you but like we're saying <laughs> we, we, we we see like, we're like Corey Farr is like our friend we never met him <laughs> <laughs> right. but what i mean by this is like there is this experience where sometimes um you know when when we were we were interviewing just earlier today the saudi student and we were kind of lamenting that a Saudi student that comes to Orange County here in Southern California, there are lots of nice things, but it is very hard to plug in and meet those five friends at a coffee shop, even in the bleakest of times. So if he's lonely, there's nowhere to go. If you go to a bar, people are skeptical. Are you talking to me because you want sex? Uh, are you here just to get drunk? Um, he doesn't drink. He doesn't go drink. Anyway. <laughs> but, but there's not that place like, like, you know, where there's that instant hospitality where you could make friends in a week um, and people aren't just kind of suspicious of you, that loneliness. Um, but for me, and I, I've written a little bit recently on this, the nature of friendship is to, to me, a lot, a, a lot of it is about a, a shared, a shared mission, shared set of values where um, I want you to succeed and you want me to succeed because of, of those, those things. Right. So when I hear what you're doing, you know, in Lebanon, that's um, that's powerful. That's important. You know, this is the strangely also, uh, you know, some of the oldest uh, forms of Christianity from this area. Mm -hmm. Um and you're not working with 
the people who might have been in the upper middle class, I'm assuming, you're, when you're dealing with Syrian refugees, now you've got an economic problem with a pandemic and the explosion. And this isn't a group of people that's, that's got a lot of folks um, looking out for them. And, and so you being a friend of these people makes us instantly say, in a at least symbolic way, if you'll take it, <laughs> you're our friend. And so that's kind of what we're, what we're thinking about. But what I really want to go to, though, is because you, because you brought it up, um, our, our least favorite aspect of the Tao Te Ching. So, of course, the reason, um, and, and of course, the reason we want to talk to you is because you uh, are the guy who does a Christian reads the Tao Te Ching. And so there's not a lot of folks <laughs> that understand why we're into it. They, right, they're very confused. Right. And so part of what you can do for us is, is kind of help us help our friends understand why this is meaningful to somebody with a Christian background. But to start with, I wanted to talk about two things that we, that we found troubling as as I read the Tao Te Ching. Interesting place to start the interview. Yeah. 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 Here's what we don't don't like about it. (laughs) That's great though. Because well, there's so much to like, right? We're, we're there's fan. sometimes a few a few things are just all of a sudden you you know you have to wrestle with it a little bit longer, yeah. you know. And I think ultimately we're not against it. Well, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just so excited when you reached out. I was so happy to see that there's somebody else trying to do something <laughs> similar to what I'm doing because I spent weeks looking and you know there's Christians who talk about the doubt aging, but my show goes through kind of chapter by chapter and you guys yes. are doing something very similar mm-hmm. and I could not find any, any book or any podcast or anything that had done anything like that. So I, I felt yeah. kindred spirit immediately. Yeah. <laughs> so. And, and that, and I want to talk about that a little bit later too, is though that the idea that, that sometimes people could say, Oh, well, when we saw that you were doing it, we're going, Oh man, he's doing exactly what we should do in the sense that like, I'm a spaz. And Stacy can be, you know, I don't know, I don't, I'll put it in your own words, but we, our disposition, we'll get to this in a second. Our disposition isn't um, Tao all the time. I mean, like the reason it is attractive to us is I think the same reason the ancient uh, philosophers known as the Stoics, they're known, you know, Stoicism is known as um, being unfeeling, but there were people, I think, typically that had strong feelings and that their, their feelings were sometimes debilitating, whether it was anxiety or worry or anger or something. So that the Stoic is attracted to Stoicism, not because they're naturally good at it necessarily, but you come across as somebody who uh, has a nice even keel. And so <laughs> we're very, very appreciative of that, but I come across that way on the show, maybe. Okay. Okay. That's good. I hear you. I, that's us, right? Like that's, that's, that, that's it. But um, so our, at least for me, uh, I think Stacey would agree the, the, the ones that really strike us as odd, at least at first, were chapters 5 and 29. And uh, Stacey, do you have the do you have our oh. version of, of 5 just because it... Yeah, I we, mean, we kind of played with it, but... Both of these relate to things I think that are... Uh, I'm picking up from, from your Christmas in Lebanon, 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the original, of course, the most common way of, of thinking about five is this idea of the straw dogs. And we didn't use the straw dogs language. And I know it's, you know, it'll be debatable. It's a side issue, but um, we, for our, for our kind of playful interpretive rendition, what we're trying to do is, is connect it to people that have some similar language and, and, and background uh, so that you don't have to go get a commentary to immediately understand it. You could kind of just read it and think about it. Um, and so what we, we were trying to figure out a way of talking about it. And we saw this child 
had 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 drawn something beautiful this was during covid during too. covid and it was when when no one was really seeing anybody you'd walk past people a chalk drawing on the on the ground and so we we did um for straw for straw dogs we did uh, sidewalk chalk chalk drawings um which I'm still wrestling with because it's, I mean, it doesn't fully grasp. I love it. It's, it's embarrassingly <laughs> suburban. Anyway, I'll, I'll read how mm. we translate with what we came up with for chapter five, but it says the cosmos is unbiased, treating all living things like sidewalk chalk drawings. The sage is unbiased, treating all people like sidewalk chalk drawings. The atmosphere is like a bellows wind blows through seeming emptiness. It stokes fires but never runs out of breath. Yet when blowhards talk, everyone gets exhausted. It's better to embrace silence. <laughs> and the reason we were we were kind of into so the this idea. Is your, sorry, this is yep. your uh, your translation. Paraphrase yeah, yeah, we're taking nice. we're, we went through it once, and then we're kind of going through it now with more of like the the more technical stuff. We we wanted when we were I did a, a sabbatical. And so we were often not able to have all our resources our online uh, you know, accessibility might've been nothing in the mountains, the way the, and I'm not sure the reason I'm worried about it isn't the suburban nature or whatever. It's the, um, it's the idea that I need to, to get the sense that there still is a kind of loving compassion. Those sidewalk chalk drawings are going to get washed away. Just like the, 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 you know, in ancient China, you've got these, you know, little, uh, the ritual, uh, use for the little straw animal that could be cherished and loved, but then the next day is just junk on the ground and, 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 or, or tossed or burnt or whatever, or in this case, washed away. So that's the first one. The idea that, that something that I grew up with, that was, that was, um, comforting about Christianity for all the things that my form of Christianity, the legalism and all sorts of things that had, had been traumatic for us. Um, the part that was nice was this idea that there's a loving providential God that cares, right? That the universe is like kind of going somewhere that there's some intentionality or something to it. And that seems to say, yeah, the universe doesn't care about those Syrian children or the bombing or the economic collapse. Like, no, like it's, it's just nature, right? And then the second one that, that kind of fits with it then is goes against my kind of Christian, the thing that I really still like about being a Christian, the thing that is, as I mentioned to you in the email, kind of similar to this idea in Judaism of the tikkun olam, the repair of the world, that that's what makes me still a Christian. I say like Taoism is for Stacey and I, um, not a thing. It's not like a religion. So, but the Tao Te Ching, the philosophy of Lao Tzu is something that we need for our own sanity. We kind of then find once we find that sanity, then we can go out with a risky business of actually, I would say, going beyond it with the teachings of Jesus to go suffer, to go get involved, to be more active uh, in that. And, but wait, yeah. I, I still I, I would appreciate uh, any of I don't know any thoughts that you had regarding even our sort of. Yeah, our dilemma with this because maybe <laughs> maybe you can give us more wisdom. Yeah, before we go to twenty nine. Yeah, that we could see something. You know, maybe we're missing something that's being said there because, of course, you know, it's off. It's I mean, it's very difficult to sometimes see what's going on until you have this aha, and then you like kind of oh, I get this now, right? And so sometimes I think when we're wrestling with the things, that sometimes it's just because we haven't come to a full understanding, and we maybe misunderstand. Right. Right. I mean. The translation or the, the way you wrote it is beautiful. Um, this one also is 
probably my least favorite. Uh, and if you listen to the show, I mean, I go through chapter by chapter and this was, I used this part of this chapter as like an example of how to just disagree, like how to just chuck something from the dungeon. Mm. Like, mm. look, I'm not, I'm not, if you thought that I was enslaved to or canonizing this text, here's proof that I'm not like I did the research. I understand what Latsu means by this or, you know, as well as you can understand what right. he means by anything like, yeah. and I just don't, I just don't accept. I don't think it's valuable for me as a Christian to understand myself or God. And so I kind of just chucked it mm. completely um, and used that as an, an opportunity. It was still very early on in the show right. uh, and, kind of showing my listeners early on like hey this this is not scripture for me this is an incredibly profoundly helpful text and we can talk about later uh how and why it's been helpful for me because it's funny that you say that's my natural disposition but i think much much like you i needed this text because that's not my natural disposition um but with chapter five i went through my notes again i love are you guys familiar with Marshall Davis's translation? Yeah, we're going to. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He I did an interview with him on the show. Actually, I know. Yeah. <laughs> OK. Wow. You're OK. You're up to date. Well, uh, I would say this. I would say what happens is I, I probably started listening to you on five and we always listen to podcasts when we fall asleep. So then I wake up at like one in the morning and I'm on number 38 or something, <laughs> you know, so I, I don't capture each piece of it. So I don't remember that. Yeah, I didn't remember that you chucked it, which is which is helpful. Yeah, good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Good to know that it's in there somewhere. Uh, the the translation he does, for those who don't know or are listening, Marshall Davis is a Christian translator. So he kind of does his own translation and he basically just substitutes God for Tao every time that it appears. Um, and sometimes this creates some problematic language for me. But mm-hmm. uh, I like the way he did this. And so sometimes he'll kind of play with the words to make it a bit more orthodox, although he's not entirely orthodox himself by evangelical standards yeah Uh, his book is the Tao of christ the Tao of christ yes uh and he says god does not play favorites god looks upon both the good and the evil christ is impartial he loves the righteous and the unrighteous so getting at something of the straw dogs idea as far as the the impartiality but i i mean he's clearly not he's also clearly not accepting or not applying or integrating some of the original meaning from that text i think right Um, and i think that's hard for us to do if we're trying to bring it into a christian meta narrative i guess Mm -hmm. because you know that's the thing about the Tao Te Ching that has been when i explain to people i'm like hey look i can use this because the Tao Te Ching doesn't have a narrative. Like it's not religious. There's no salvation story. Mm-hmm. There's no, it's just a philosophy. It's not even really a philosophy. It's like a self-help book, you know? Right. And so it, I have no problem taking something that has no narrative and then using it while staying within the Christ narrative. Um, and even medi- you know, musing about what parts of Christ was allowed to grasping or what parts of mm-hmm natural revelation was he was he tapped into but um anyway where was i going with that yeah i think just the chapter five the straw dogs piece like i just don't see that as helpful 
for me in any way. So the only, know? yeah. And the only time I actually found maybe something helpful uh, was when we watched a documentary, My Octopus Teacher. Have you seen or heard about that documentary? It's worth it, my man. <laughs> so basically my there's, yeah, yeah, my octopus teacher, there's this guy who, um, he's, well, he's a scuba diver. and he, Free diver. And yes, a free diver. And so he decides to be as natural as possible himself when he's going to go and observe and, and film um, this. And he eventually finds this octopus and he starts kind of filming like their relationship that he ends up um, having, but he befriends an octopus an octopus, and <laughs> yeah. he goes to the same spot and it comes and it, and it says hi and it cuddles him and touches his finger. Yeah. And it's pretty heavy. And he realizes like when he first, I mean, I don't know. So spoiler alert for people that want to, you know, watch my octopus teacher, but like there's a part where he's seeing how this octopus um, like ends up, acting in scared situations and then that's what it does and all these things so he's this observer and then he also realizes there's the sharks nearby that are threatening this octopus and so there's this part in him where he realizes that him sort of interfering the the least in this situation is the best and even if because if he were to save this octopus from the shark well then and there's just another shark it's not really doing any favors to you know I guess, choose the shark. Oh, I mean, the octopus over the shark and its protection or anything. And that it actually, he would then kind of maybe mess with the balance of nature if he interfered in any way. I don't know, maybe it's stretching it, but I think that that idea of not trying to fix anything um, that often I, I see throughout the Tao Te Ching, not trying to um, that, so the unbiased, but almost I see it like because if if it's as life works, the more that we try to tinker with things, then the more we mess them up. And that certainly fits the the rest of the chapters. Is the is that not like invasive uh, tinkering? The, and maybe that's stretching. Yeah, the part, the part <laughs> for me, the part for me, where I thought it would actually, the, I, so I didn't like it at first. But it's also the translations, right? So sometimes um, it's very cold. Sometimes it might be Christianized, right? Um, and, and, and maybe not faithful as you're saying, I think that's, that's interesting. The, the part for me though, that is helpful is when I think about if I'm a, if I'm a kid at your orphanage, okay, let me go with it this way and just tell me how you, how you respond to this one. If I believe that there's a providential God forcing these things to happen or making these things happen, then it's like when Jesus is asked, is this, is this person born blind because he did something wrong? or his parents did something wrong. So if I'm suffering, there is an element of, of comfort to think that this is not, um, this is God, not God torturing me, that this is, that this is like Jesus saying the rain falls on the just and the unjust. This is Job with all that trauma and all God actually can give to Job is a mystical vision of the cosmos. And yeah, the cosmos doesn't care if you're asking it from that vantage point from a karmic perspective or like reincarnation or something like that, it's, it's to free us to say sometimes really crummy things happen to people that are good, which is also kind of part of the Christian tradition. I don't know. What do you think about that? <laughs> oh man, just took a right turn from right angled from where I thought we were going, but uh, I did want to tag. I'm sorry. I, I, I wanted to tag what, what she was saying. Yeah. Uh, Stacy. No, Stacy, yeah, I should yes. have known your name first. No, 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 no Stacy was saying of like the, um, you had mentioned what you were saying would lead us. I think, I know you want to get to chapter 29. Um, 
as the other one you have you don't like in the Tikkuna Lam and all of that. And I did have some comments on that. And I think uh, those will really play well into this Sorry. discussion. But I couldn't hear what you said. Hi, Sorry, Siri. Keep it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it triggered on the watch for some reason. Oh, my Siri my just went on. <laughs> <laughs> See, her name is Stacy, and sometimes Siri. Uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> Sorry, you're saying. Um, so, um, yeah, just uh, the idea. Sorry, so you were saying. Um, remind me of your question. The uh, idea that it could be comforting, right? To not think that these these irrational, like these gratuitous sufferings. Mm. The the child who is not only a refugee, but is this is increasingly feeling like there must be some cosmic reason why he or she is is suffering directly from the hand of God or providence. I mean, that's definitely what Islam teaches. And yeah. so that's kind of in the I mean, all of our boys are from Muslim families and backgrounds, although mostly non-practicing. But right. um, and I think most of the very conservative Lebanese evangelicals as they are all very conservative. They feel like Baptists from the 1950s Bible belt or something. Um, so that's somewhat a fish out of water here, but yeah, I think that uh, they might not word it the same way, but that is also going to be the general view. Um, I certainly don't find it comforting or compelling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whatsoever. Um, I, I, I think for me, it's helpful to come back around to, um, I think it's uh, Terrence Fredheim. Maybe it's, I think it's Terrence Fredheim, but talks about God in, in creation by simply creating other beings with free will. He essentially gave up some of his own power and his own sovereignty. And it sounds almost blasphemous when you say it at first, but it's like... <laughs> It's a logical conclusion that by giving us, making us in the image of God, allowing us to make free choices, to steward the earth, to do all of the things that we can do, he's allowing us to do things. Therefore, he is not, he's choosing not to be all powerful in the sense of not controlling every detail. And so thinking of the tragedy and the atrocity that goes on in the world as a result of human choices, but human choices that were for God to undo those choices would be for God to undo what makes us human. If that makes sense, like for God to simply intervene and say, no, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to, um, you know, hijack this plane. I'm going to just, you know, put everything back on track here because you guys have all messed it up. Like hijack it from the hijackers. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's probably a poor metaphor, especially living in the Middle East. But <laughs> I don't know. Though. I mean, that, but that would be that's a that's a that's not the world we tend to see, right? I mean, that's yeah. that's true. Like that freedom, and that certainly fits. That fits better. We um, we grew up in an evangelical tradition that was strongly Calvinistic, not officially, um, and yeah. and but in our twenties we kind of joined up the Lutherans, and that was one of the things that attracted us to it. That the for Lutherans, the the thing that and Lutherans can be very annoying. But the thing that's attractive about the theology, Christians can be very um, Christians people, but um, well, there's a there's a unique kind of Germanic annoyingness in America uh, from our from our tradition. But the um, but the thing that I like about it is uh, there's like there's a Christological uh, understanding of this. It's not just um, it's not like the emphasis isn't on free will as much. It's similar, but it's the idea that 
the if you want to know what God's like, you've got to understand God through the suffering Christ. And if you're mm-hmm. if you're speculating about this this distant Father God in the sky without the revelation through this Jesus, then it then God looks monstrous, you know. Right. And the so suffering. Yeah. And so for somebody who doesn't have a uh, someone who's not met this guy, Jesus, then uh, then Lao Tzu is the best you're going to be able to get. I mean, th- you know, because the alternative is um, Job's counselors. I mean, that, that's where I was going with. I mean, I think we can reconcile these things in the sense that that's not the whole story that's going to be comforting. But there is a way in which, to your point, with with uh, the, the heavy kind of fatalism in, in Islam, that to reject that is also the same as, again, to reject... Uh, in, in some ways to reject um, like a Hindu kind of form of, of reincarnation as the explanation where we blame the victims. And I think there, there's, there is that, I guess that's what I mean by the relief, not maybe at an existential level, but to say that the person who is, is, is crippled and blind, it's a beggar doesn't deserve this because of some karma they're paying back or um, God's curse or something. Uh, could you go to 29, Stacey? Sure. Mm. Cause this is the other one. This is, this is now is like kind of our role then. Do you want to rule the world? Do you think you can fix everything according to your own sense of how things ought to be? I can see that you won't succeed. For the world is a sacred system and an interconnected mystery. You can't dominate it. Try to tinker with it and you'll screw it up. Try to own it and you'll lose it. Some lead, others follow. Some are intense, others are chill. Some are ripped, others are lean. Some build up. Others tear down. The sage stays balanced, lays down materialism, lays down excessive consumption, lays down egotism. So the main part, though, is, and I think it was, it wasn't, it was Stephen Marshall, who was kind of more of like a new age, uh, you know, popular translator that was helpful. Um, he, I think, you know, he says, you know, you can't change, you think you can change the world, it can't be done. Well, that's, that's what I think the mission of God is, you know? <laughs> so, so would you reflect on that with us? Cause I mean, yeah. you know, like to me, that's, I think those things go hand in hand five, the universe doesn't care. Um, 29, we're, we're not really supposed to do anything about it. You know, there's not, right. there's no, there's no engagement with these injustices. Right. Yeah. No. And I, that's why I think 29 really is a key part to this kind of topic that we're circling around. Uh, and I, you know, also like, because the, the the literal translations are like, I mean, what is it? I had it here, but basically, like, do you think you can fix the world? You can't. You know, don't do anything. Um, but I like what you did. You kind of said the first few lines. Can you read those again? You just... Yeah. So it says, "Do you want to rule the world? Do you think you can fix everything according to your own sense of how things ought to be? I can right. see that okay. you won't succeed." Yeah. Okay. So putting it in terms of the the human perspective of like, do what you think will fix the world. Well, yeah. It's not going to work. I, I pulled up my notes uh, back from when I did the episode and um, maybe this will move the discussion forward. Maybe it'll just get us down a rabbit trail. But uh, <laughs> uh, basically I said, I don't think we should take this passage to mean that we should give up all the attempts at making progress or making positive changes in the world. But there's a difference between forcing change and progress or cooperating with the Tao or cooperating with God as they unfold. All of creation is always changing. And so when we attempt to label changes as good or bad and then seize control of them, 
we're only we're only repeating the pattern that both Lao Tzu and the author of Genesis identified of this knowledge of good and evil. You know, that's the the origin of the brokenness was not rebellion per se. It was rooted in a duality of knowing good and evil and being able to judge between the two. And so as we do that, as the universe is changing. And so as we kind of try to take, try to preside over those changes and determine what changes are good and what changes are bad in our own power, we're setting ourselves up for failure as, as you said. And so uh, I said that that is the great danger of progressive thinking. But on the other hand, if we try to hold things up and we try to prevent the change, and we're always looking back to the good old days when things were ideal, and then we're just trying to improve the world, but in a different way. We're trying to improve it by keeping it from changing. Uh, we're trying to build a dam in the river of time to keep it from flowing. And that's the great danger of conservative thinking. But if we can remain centered in Tao and move with the ebbs and flows of the world, and demonstrate real presence and real compassion for the time and place that we're in and the people that we're with, then ironically, that is when we will find the most beautiful lasting changes coming forth, which is not to say that it will require no effort on our part, but that when we find our center and we remain open to any new changes that come our way, rather than trying to hold on to our vision of what things should be, then we'll find ourselves right in the center of where we should be. Right, man that was a mouthful <laughs> no that's not a that's not a that's that's that's, that's sage that is so good because you know we could stop right there i mean that is you you've got you caught so many things especially for somebody who's coming from a christian background somebody who's dealing with the world that we we're facing now i just think that's absolutely right on track thank you that is we're not gonna stop here until you until you make us because um i want to talk about other <laughs> things but that is that is it that that is wonderful and i think um and i think to then take that to some of your background. Uh, this is how I like to do it. I like to jump in and then go back to some, to fill in the, the bio stuff. You said at one point uh, in a different interview that I heard that um, you'd gone to seminary and um, you, in some ways, I think you just said it, it didn't quite work out the way you had expected. Can you talk about that? Because you're right there, you were you were throwing some good theology. You know, you got the good you got the good understanding of the Tao Te Ching as far as you know bringing this into our conversation. But I can detect a uh, a, a good theologian behind that. Mm-hmm. What was what was seminary like, and 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 how did you kind of change your direction during that time? Um. Well, so I did my undergrad at uh, in theology religion at. Um, uh, at, at actually Liberty University. Uh, did you really? Okay. <laughs> I did it online, so I've never been on campus, thank God. But uh, <laughs> I usually don't. I usually don't mention the name yes. of my alma mater because right. of the stigma that comes with being associated with Jerry Falwell and his brand. But it's uh, not going great these days. No. <laughs> uh, I was uh, I was steeped in that way of thought. I will say this about Liberty: they did give you the at least in the online program, they gave you the ability to question and think outside of their little boxes. One of my first courses there was like on creation. And it's like, here's how theistic evolutionists believe. Here's how literal creationists believe. This institution is clearly literal creationist, but you can make up your mind. And uh, I did feel that attitude from them a lot. But, um, but 
I, I really appreciate that experience because I know how to think in the Calvinist mindset or the fundamentalist mindset because I was there and I, I was completely all in on the on all of it. And I'm so not now. I mean, I'm an open theist and like as far as you could get from from Calvinism mm. uh, and so many other ways. But when people will try to debate with me and try to convince me of, you know, tulip or whatever, I'm like, dude, you're doing this all wrong. You need to use this first and this first and tell me this. And this. Like you're yep. doing the argument poorly, but it's not yep. going to convince me because I know it. Like, um, So, I, but I loved that. And then I got introduced to Scott McKnight and N.T. Wright and those kind of guys and ended up going to, it's a whole long story of how I got there, but uh, ended up going to Northern Seminary just outside uh Chicago, where Scott McKnight teaches, uh, David Fitch. I don't, he's, he's our other kind of big name guy, although he's certainly not as well known as McKnight. Um, but very like kind of Northern is, I mean, if you know McKnight, you know, McKnight's deal and, uh, he's amazing. Was a great, great professor. Um, but very much focused on women in ministry and learning about minorities and liberation theologies and introducing those into the conversation. So trying to be this traditionally white evangelical school that is trying to be woke as much as possible. Right. And, uh, and I appreciated that. Um, but my original plan, stepping back for a second and going to the seminary was I wanted to do PhD route like ASAP, uh, loved the academic side still do to an extent um and was all about i wanted rigorous train i had applied to yale divinity and i didn't get in um and having visited yale a couple times like that's what i thought seminary was going to be this like very very academic rigorous experience and when i got to northern it was not at all like that um, probably my entire first year was learning stuff that I had learned early on in my undergraduate degree. Yeah. And so just feeling incredibly disappointed, um, lonely. I had moved across the country, uh, left my home state, had just had, uh, you know, had, uh, the summer before I moved to seminary, my almost fiance ended our relationship. So it was a very hard time. And, uh, looking back on it now, incredibly transformative time, but seminary was not what I expected it to be because I had in my head a vision of what it should be. And so I spent the entire first year in, I would say, fairly serious depression. Um, now that I look back and can kind of evaluate it because I was holding on to my expectations of what it should be and what it, and that's one reason why the Tao Te Ching has been so impactful for me, although I didn't discover it until years later, but seeing this tendency in myself to get the vision or the idea in my head, and then when it doesn't live up to that vision, fail to be in, fail to experience it for what it is. Um, you know, Bonhoeffer in, in, uh, in Life Together says, uh, the person who loves his vision of community, no matter how beautiful and lovely and you know just and christ-like it is will fail to create community and will actually destroy it 
but the person who actually loves the people around them will create community. And that's always been, I've always loved that quote. Uh, and it just kind of cuts at our idealism. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's something Lao Tzu does as well is here's, here it is, here's the whole big mess. And don't, and that's kind of what this chapter is like, don't try to change it. Don't be so idealistic that you get caught up in what is not that you miss what is. Right. And, uh, and so that, you know, that being a big part of my story, having gone through that experience and, you know, after graduating from seminary, having to go through a complete 90 degree turn from where I thought I was headed and getting called to move to Lebanon completely unexpectedly to work with kids uh, which had never been on my radar. I'd worked with teens forever, loved teens, but I mean, ask me a few years ago, I would say, I hate children's ministry. Yeah. Fifth grade <laughs> kids and they don't understand me. And I'm, I'm all up here. You know, I'm all in my right. head and they don't, we're like talking past each other, but I couldn't be happier now. Um, but seeing how going through this, this time around uh, having to go through major changes and being able to hold expectations and hold um, yeah, expectations more loosely and to be able to go with the flow more. I was already learning that through the constant, I just kept coming up into onto that kind of that buzzed phrase of be present, you know, live present. And that was really powerful for me. And then discovering the Tao Te Ching shortly before I moved to Lebanon really helped with that. Um, you may have heard this in the interview, but before I got here, kind of all over the place in my story here right now, but uh, it does tie together. Um, after a year of preparing to come to Lebanon, visiting the orphanage, falling in love with the kids, having a clear vision, uh, we went through, I think it was eight weeks of delay from after I was supposed to come because my visa papers were not getting processed. We went through three times having to delay the flights. Um, the first two times finding out like a day before I was supposed to go, like literally all my things were packed and then having to move into my friend's basement and then having to tell my friend three weeks later, um, <laughs> Hey, can I stay here another three weeks? And so that time was potentially way more depressing and way more disorienting and mm -hmm. way more like mind shatteringly, everything than the, than the seminary move was. And yet I had this incredible, don't get me wrong. I was, I was heartbroken. You know, I wept quite a few times. I was definitely struggling, but there was a very, I discovered that was when I discovered the Tao Te Ching and it, it drew out some resonance of some things that had already been developing within me. And I found that even in the complete chaos, both internally and externally like I was able to kind of have this okay I can't change this I can't control this I can't improve this as lots of might say I'm just gonna do what I can with what's right in front of me and how that mindset shift that is so central to the Tao Te Ching looking at the difference between how I dealt with my first year of seminary and how I dealt with my first year of coming 
into the missions field, which I don't love that phrase, to be honest with you. I don't <laughs> like being a, a quote unquote missionary, but one of the least, you know, least uh, approved you know, professions in the world sometimes these days, you know, it's like, you know, if you're on the plane, you're like, maybe that's the first way I'm going to describe what I do. <laughs> I don't even like to think of myself as that. I'm just, yeah. you know, I came into an operation that's been here for 80 years and I'm just doing my job. That's the right. best I can. But, um, uh, the, the latter, you know, this first year here in Lebanon has been far more disorienting and potentially depressing and, and everything than again, than that first year at seminary was, but having that perspective shift or having that tool of being present. And even if you want to take it as far as chapter 29, or at least how I read it of like, not idealizing what changes I think need to happen or, like just, just doing, I mean, it's so simple, really. I'm using a lot of words, but basically just be where you are. You can't be anywhere else right? and do what and you can't can. fight. Yeah. You can't fight against what's going to happen or, you know, even COVID, right? Everybody's like, you know, right. 20, 2020, what a year, you know, nothing has gone according to plan. Right. And I, that really has brought much of the world sort of at, and at this point of having to wrestle with things not going um, how everybody planned. And here where we are in Orange County, there's this, I think, this idea that the restrictions or whatever, um, you know, the, the people blame the governor, mm-hmm. you know, well, which governor, you know, is it really the governor? Um, it's, I mean, this, this, I think it's funny, yeah, cause we're saying that there's all these different little strands of our conversation, but it all is kind of interestingly fitting together in this question where we're, we're some, you know, we're sometimes crying out, why God, why, you know, what, what's going on here. And sometimes we want to blame somebody, so that we can have somebody to hate or be angry at or to explain it instead of uh, being present, as you're saying. And I think that's a great testimony, the way you're saying it, because, in a, you know, in, in the grand scheme, somebody who's in Chicago and, you know, it's not the as compelling of a of a coursework, uh, you know, routine crime your river. All right. <laughs> but what you're talking about as you get to, and I, I believe me, I'd be, I'd be, you know, curled up in a ball myself. <laughs> it's like I, I have these moments myself, but I'm saying, you know, people might say that, but your ability to see the applicability of what you're talking about for a life change and a culture shock and a move somewhere um, where I'm assuming you don't really, you don't know anybody when you're, when you're getting ready to go out there. Right. There's no, there's no context that you'd already had close relationships had- with. I had spent a month here, okay, uh, and so knew all the kids. And okay, knew the staff decently well. Um, uh, when I got here, I would get to know them more, and <laughs> wish I could know them less now. Some of them, but um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, like that's yeah. one of the one of the biggest struggles has been certain interpersonal yeah. issues with staff. Um, and and looking back on the training now, they said the number one reason missionaries leave the field is other missionaries on their teams. Mm, like, yeah. yeah. So that makes um, a lot of sense. Well, and yeah. Especially when you're kind of forced to be your own little bubble. Cause you were saying for the kids safety for all of you, right. That right. I mean, you had we've, to really kind of isolate yourselves. Yeah. We've got 25 boys and about 20 to 25 um, either staff or children of staff who live here. And so there's a very, it's a big enough community to, yeah, it's a very, I don't even know how to explain it. It's like a family, you know, it's always we're family, we're family, we're family. But then there's a weird because it's like you're kind of it's kind of your job, too. But um, just navigating all of the incredibly weird dynamics here has been 
very disorienting and overwhelming. I mean, my first year at seminary, it was the coursework wasn't rigorous enough. I had no friends, mm. um, or at least my friends weren't what I wanted them to be. I did have friends, but I expected more from them. And again, it was an expectations thing. Um, but r- really, it wasn't like anyone was directly attacking me. It was just poor expectations. Whereas this time I get here and not that people are attacking me, but I'm constantly coming up against real challenges that are directly making my life difficult and not mm. just not just um, not just failing to be what I want them to be, like the first mm. year at seminary was. And my attitude is I don't want to like pat myself pat myself on the back here. I'll pat Lazo on the back. Like my <laughs> attitude has been so different. And uh and for me, that's why. I love the Tao Te Ching and I don't think it's, I mean, I think it just points us to things that either Christ said them or it's not too much of a stretch of the imagination to, to assume that Christ thought this way or would have acted mm-hmm. this way. If you kind of read between the lines. Oh yeah. Stacy, um, Stacy and I've done some uh, teaching overseas and every once in a while, when things get a little tricky for me over here, I always think, well, that's my next game, right? Like that's, I would, uh, I'm, our kids are out of the house now and uh, you know, we're I'm in mid forties, but surprisingly we're empty nesters and we're, we're free agents in a sense we can go anywhere. Um, but we recall some of our greatest joys have been teaching in places like, uh, Shenzhen or Hong Kong, um, English. Um, but also a couple things like, well, I don't know if you know this. I, I hope the, I hope the Lebanese kids are nice. The Chinese kids, they get better as they, they go on. So like in, in my experience in America teaching, um, uh, is that, the, the kindergartners, first grade, second grade, really sweet. Then by the time they're in middle school, they're kind of talking back and they're a little feisty. For some reason in China, they kind of let them be really, really free to the point of um, them being really obnoxiously disobedient. Not very well behaved. At the, fir- at the first days. And then they slowly start to conform. And I think part of it is once you get past 18, now you're going to be part of the state system. We're going to tell you where your, your career is going to be. And so they slowly start to, to kind of wind in. But the, it wasn't the students that got us. It was religion plus certain ways of being within the schools of the other teachers, sometimes American, sometimes Chinese or national teachers where the Holy spirit wants us to do it this way. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I can't fight with the Holy spirit. And also this is a bad idea. And, you know, it's like some of those um, it's, it's both interpersonal conflicts, teaching style, but also kind of the religious element um, without, you know, obviously you don't want to air dirty laundry, but what would you say are some of the kind of the theological frictions as you're working with teaching? Cause one of the main reasons, you know, we, this season we're dealing with, Dao Te Ching, but really our podcast is primarily about, um, you know, in our case, using the Dao Te Ching for people who have been um, harmed by religious communities and teaching and yet don't want to go into this world where they're angry atheists. They don't have any way of being reflective about their own spirituality and and like you're saying, that self-help to find some stability or some some kind of um, peaceful ground where you can be reflective as you've been, you know, without always trying to change things or control people or make them see, see things, um, the way you see them. Uh, I, that was a, too long of a question, but I'm just wondering, I was just <laughs> thinking, I'm trying to find the question. <laughs> yeah. yeah the, the question is like, what, especially, um, in your particular case, what kind of assumptions about what Christianity is affects the way that you teach or are there, are there places where that becomes, 
attention. Um, and I'm the worst interviewer in terms of I ask very long questions, but my, my main my main concern is for religious education in general. So when I'm teaching, I teach at a Christian university, and um, some and I have students from non Christian backgrounds, and so I always struggle with this idea like how how can I be faithful to the tradition but also not be indoctrinating and as I'm asking that question, I'm also I've got other teachers and administrators who want me to do something that maybe I'm slightly not comfortable with. Mm. Interesting. I'm trying to think, I mean, I can give you the answer from my context. I don't think that it speaks to your question in your context or kind of what you're getting at. Well, I'm actually, all, yeah, I'm but, getting at what's your context. Cause I know mine, but I'm, I'm okay. kind of curious what, like how does religion as like the concepts well, of religion play into your work with these students? Right. Uh, well, so we're evangelical, like openly evangelical school and organization. Um, been here for, you know, 80 years. All the kids are here. All the kids are from Muslim families, except for one, I think. But they've all been submitted or applied to the program. Again, most of them, like you ask them, you know, when have you been to mosque? When's the last time you went to mosque? Uh, I don't know. Like, do you know the prayers? Uh, not really. Does your dad do the prayers? No, like they're not practicing, um, which side note, education wise, like Americans need to learn that Muslim has about as many different meanings as the word Christian does. Mm-hmm. So um, that always annoys me. But uh, so, so it's the, the whole culture. Uh, there's so many angles I could come at this. Okay. Let me, let me do it this way. So Lebanese evangelical culture is, it's a very small minority, um, less than 1% of the country. I think it's like 0.8% of the country, maybe. Um, very conservative. It, it very much smacks of imperialism or co- uh, colonialism, not imperialism, colonialism. Yeah. We're in the place where Christianity was birthed, and yet the evangelical churches were clearly started by white Westerners and have all of the behaviors and attitudes and theological beliefs and unfortunately the judgmentalism or the stuffiness of the bad stereotypes of the Baptist missionary. Mm. Uh, Not to say that, I mean, the people are wonderful, but, but there's this kind of, you know, it's kind of in the air and you would think that, with such a small minority who are so conservative that there would be this incredible unity because it's a very small country. And the the joke that is not even a joke is like, if you know one evangelical, you can pretty much get to all the others, you know, they're Mm -hmm. all connected. Mm -hmm. I'm constantly meeting people like, Oh yeah, this ministry. Oh, you know, this guy, this guy, this guy, because it's a small community. And you would think that in a country that's incredibly divided over so many things, religion, culture, politics, everything, you would think that this small minority of evangelicals would be incredibly united, but actually what I've heard and observed a little bit is um, one of my friends, he's like, no, we're the most divided group in the whole country. Mm. And it's this phenomena that you see of like the smaller, the in group and the smaller in the grand scheme of things, the smaller, the issues that you disagree on, the harder you're going to fight about those things. And so there's this very, I, I knew that it was the case. I get to see this painted in bright colors because all the boys have to go to church uh, every weekend. And 
except for a very small handful of them, most of them hate it. And I, sometimes I go to church with them and I'm like, I don't blame you. This, <laughs> if you want to teach kids to like, like love Jesus, this is the worst way to do it. Making them sit mm. through a two hour service. Yeah. Yep. Boring as hell. And I'm just like literally boring as hell. Yep. Like, I'm yep. like, you're sending yeah. these kids to what is for them a personal hell and you're, you know, so, but, but there's this one boy, he's really all about it. And I, I mean, I just, I love it. He loves Jesus and he has fallen in love with the faith and it's great. But I was talking to him one time, telling him I had been visiting different churches. And I said, oh, you know, I'm going to go to uh, Mr. John's church next week. And Mr. John is a guy who used to work here. And uh, The boys never, I guess his church was not one of the ones that the boys go to, but I guess this particular boy had gone with Mr. John to his church a few times. And um, I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to go visit that one. What do you think? And he's like, oh, I wouldn't go there. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, they're not really like, they don't believe the Bible there or something. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. what do you mean? He's like, well, they're not really, they just, they're not really Christians there. I'm like, what do you mean? Oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say anything more. I just, Mm -hmm. no, you gotta, there's something behind that. Like, you gotta tell me what, what is the deal? Mm -hmm. Well, they take, they take communion every week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. But I said, what? That's what, yeah. I said, what? He's like, yeah, they take communion every week. You're only supposed to take it once a month. Jesus said that. <laughs> I kid you not. He said, Jesus said that. And I'm like, actually. That's it, isn't it? Jesus said, if you want to get really literal, Jesus said, every time you meet, you should take it. If you really want to. He's like, no, he didn't say that. I said, Buddy, I have seven years of like Bible studies, but, <laughs> but, but you don't even need seven years of Bible studies here. Let me pull up on my phone yeah. right there. And he goes, oh, and so that, that being a small issue, but that yeah. points to a bigger reality of there's a very specific view that's given. And that view is gospel. You should take communion once a month because maybe they didn't tell him Jesus said it, but it's as good as Jesus said yeah. it because that's what we do. And me being on the charismatic side, I'm not, I've always been part of charismatic evangelical churches and I've seen all the good and the bad and everything in between that comes with that. But um, I appreciate the openness and the, I appreciate a lot about it. And so particularly here compared to what I was experiencing at the other churches, I got connected with a coworker and good friend of mine is like part of one of the like two charismatic evangelical churches that exist here and um, had told the staff, yeah, I'm visiting this church. And immediately there was some jokes made of, Oh, that's the one where they're like dancing in the aisles and like waving yeah, sticks yeah. around. Right. And just, yeah. just like this, just openly mocking yeah. this mm-hmm. church that really is like, we're all on the same team here. And also it's not even remotely like, like, one person maybe will raise their hands. Like it's not even right. charismatic. You're not doing the snake right. handling. No. Because no. <laughs> when she, well, when she said that, I was like, oh man, what am I getting into here? And like, I got there and it was like, oh, just people feel free to raise their hands and they can pray out loud during the worship service whenever they want, which would be disrupting the order, you know, in the other churches. And so mm. um, anyway, all of that rambling to say there is, I'm in this world where everyone has, like concrete bunkers around their theology and there's no there's no you know they're just entrenched in what they believe 
but it doesn't really come up a whole lot with me because I don't really talk theology here with them. And I keep, I try to keep my faith interactions with the staff and with the boys at the most basic level of like, I love Jesus, you love Jesus, or I want you to love Jesus. Here's what Jesus did for me in my life. Like, let's just start with Jesus. It sounds so simple, but when it comes to those points of like, maybe they're being taught things I don't agree with or something along those lines, I just very Lao Tzu style. I just kind of go with the flow and I don't kick back and say, you guys are teaching this wrong or you're, you know, I just say, okay, like I love Jesus and my relational, my ministry style is very relational. And so I'm not doing a lot of preaching. In fact, I was told one time that I shouldn't, uh, shouldn't lead any Bible studies after the director read one of my blogs. And I was like, Oh, (laughs) I was like, it was the one where I wrote about annihilation. I said, I don't, the blog post title was, called, uh, I don't believe in hell. Does that mean I'm going there? And it was basically just a case for annihilation, annihilation. And oh my God, I can't talk annihilationalism. It's two o'clock in the morning here. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was like, yeah, I saw your post. It was well-written. Um, please don't talk to the boys about any of that. Yeah. And I'm like, mm. I'm like, what makes you think I'm just going to bring up hell like with a bunch of 12, 13 year old, like, Hey guys, so I don't believe in hell. Let's, you know, Mm. but it's, it was this, like, there's a fear of other viewpoints coming in. And so I, I said before, I'm not by nature, a very Taoist person. Trust me. I am by my nature. I'm incredibly, um, I'm an ENFP. I'm Myers Briggs, and that's what we're going to ask. Yep. You had asked me. You had asked me what my enneagram is. I have never resonated very strongly with it, but I think I'm an eight, which is the challenger. Interesting. Uh, yeah, and with probably a seven wing. Um, there's a lot of it that resonates with me. So from the time I was young, I was constantly bucking the system, um, pushing back against authority, getting very, very worked up over things that. I saw it needed to be changed. Um, usually covering it up by saying it was, you know, the the gift of being prophetic, you know, not in the sense of telling the future, but like, oh, I'm speaking God's heart. And, yeah. but doing it in a very unhealthy way a lot of the times. Um, but that's my disposition. And so I'm in a situation right now where that could be incredibly destructive yeah because i would find myself undermining i guess this is what it comes down to if if i let that side of me kind of rear its head and there i think there's a time and a place for it but here in this context i would just be undermining the other staff and we're here because we want the kids to see jesus and meet jesus and we have that in common and regardless of I've got plenty of things wrong in my theology and they've got plenty of things wrong in theirs. That's just a given. Um, But when it comes to this idea of like, how do we work alongside each other with different theologies? I just kind of live my theology, I guess. That's a very loud to answer. No, but it's it's a very loud to answer. In other words, you're (laughs) modeling 
what you're rather than trying to fix everybody, rather than trying to tell them, you're just modeling what you see as the the way to be. And then hopefully that will translate um, you know, through. Like can, they can see that, right? If it's attractive to them. Right. And there's so I think there's a place for like the teaching or the indoctrination. It's mm-hmm. sometimes more indoctrination here, but uh, I think there is a, there's a place for that. But I've decided that's not my role, even though I'm I was always like the teacher one. Uh, but like I found myself in this unique spot of being the one. They're constantly getting preached at. Let's put it that way. They're always mm-hmm. going to church and Bible studies, and they're always hearing it from good hearts. But it's always coming at them, and I have particularly thinking of the teen boys here, most of them want nothing to do with it. And in fact, they're very openly kind of against it. And they'll just talk as you would expect teen boys to talk about all of the things that teen boys love to talk about that they know they shouldn't be talking about. And they get in trouble all the time because of how they talk or what they're saying, what words they're, you know, they're just cursing or talking about, you know, porn or something and just all kinds of just very inappropriate things they'll say. And I have made it my goal to be like, they know I love Jesus. They've heard from me at least once what Jesus did for me. And so I'm not going to talk about Jesus at all with them unless they bring it up to me. And I'm just going to be with them because I'm with them a lot. And I'm going to let them say what they're going to say and do what they're going to do. I'm not going to partake in it. I won't even laugh at it. It's been a few times they got me to laugh because it was really funny, even though it was really inappropriate. <laughs> but, but like just this sort of non-judgmental, non-anxious presence. Um, and there's a whereas the other staff would be like, you need to knock it off. Like that's not okay or whatever. Right. And they need to hear that from someone. So I don't think everyone, like I don't think everyone should just let them say whatever they want to say. But for me being in this place of, I'm in the unique place of being able to say, just kind of be that safe space for them among the staff. And I have seen their attitudes towards me have changed a lot. And I believe that in the long term, there will be, I'm praying that there will be fruit from it in terms of like, okay, so you love Jesus. And I feel like I can be safe with you because you've heard me say all of my junk. So why, you know, how, how can you just, I don't even know how to say what I'm trying to say. How, well, how would you, you let be? me be? Yeah. How would you let me yeah. be? Right. And not judge That's, me for it or tell me to ex- be differently. Exactly. Yeah. I'm getting, I think I, I crossed two trains of thought there, but yeah, just letting them be who they're going to be. And then, um, finding those moments where you get to, I was going to say shine a little bit of light, but honestly the, the vision or the hope would be that the light's always on and that um, maybe they open a door and the light can shine into the places where they need it to shine into. Um, But yeah, so I don't think any of that answered your question. It it perfectly Uh, answered the question because I, I mean, in many ways, that's what I thought you might say. But I didn't want to put it like I didn't want to put it into your to your uh, into your own mouth because because maybe it's not like sometimes I have these expectations of of what uh, teaching in a in a kind of a commission would be like because we've we've done a lot of that. I mean, I 
I ran away from a Christian school in sixth grade because I just found it to be uh, like suffocating. But then, um, through that process, I, um, I was in detention a lot and I was only allowed to read the Bible and then uh, sit at lunch in the Lotus position and meditate. <laughs> so they, you know, what I'm doing now, the kind of Jesus and uh, contemplation is accidentally something that started from a very fundamentalist, uh, school in sixth grade. Um, when and fundamentalist school made you sit in like Lotus position. Yeah. But they didn't think of it as Lotus position. I call it Indian style. <laughs> yeah. They, oh, so yeah, I, I got yeah. in trouble. I mean, the short version is the, uh, the short version is um, they wanted me to put my hands up during worship uh, during a song that says in moments like these, I lift up my hands. And I said, well, I'm kind of depressed right now and I'm not going to do it for you, for you. And so they, they put me in detention and I could only have the Bible. And so I, uh, every day they said at the end of my hour session, they said, well, now are you sorry? If you're sorry, you can be out of detention. Oh I said, God. yeah, the more I'm reading the Bible, the more I think I'm right and you're wrong. And so that's what got me into studying theology. But then being able to sit quietly, I was, I was forced to do basically what the, what the Zen Buddhists, you know, call Zazen. I was forced to sit without moving or talking. And it allowed me these moments of contemplating what the texts were that I had studied. So I kind of decided to be a theology professor um, to, to kind of liberate these students, well, and missionary part, kids, pastors, kids, they're all angry, you know? Well, yeah. That's and part of, yeah. So he was able, thing. yeah, he became kind of a constant fixture. And so they would, he would hear the real, gossip of the teachers and things like that or what the students were saying as if you know he wasn't there and he was yeah like, they didn't wait. even notice i was there on their playground all right so he's like wait a minute this this thing that i'm reading sounds so much more beautiful than what i'm witnessing around you and and so it was sort of the idea of like let's not let people i don't know, turn this into something else that it's not that this is almost a horror version of itself. And so really, even now I'm, in, I'm 47. I mean, what Stacy and I have been really trying to do is we're, we're still not willing to give up on the way of Jesus, the Tao of Jesus. Now, not to say that I'm not going to baptize the Tao in this case, I'd say like the, the things that Jesus teaches were liberating. And yet they, these pastors, kids, missionary kids, they heard it as pain. It wasn't just, it was boring, but it was also, um, taking out the, the, the wind out of their sails in all the joy. Um, yeah, you don't want to be talking about porn, but there is, there is um, a playfulness and a, and a freedom of spirit that also sometimes can get crushed out of a kid in these situations. And so I decided to go into education precisely to deal with that. At the same time, sometimes I found that I then have been drawn into these communities and it has been draining my own life. And so sometimes I want to get out and that's why I say, I just want to go teach English somewhere mm -hmm. so that, and this is to your, to your point, I think perfectly, I didn't know this about you. I didn't think, I didn't suspect this. I think the difference, if, if you go with the Enneagram thing, I'm a seven, if you're saying you're an eight, um, I'm, I'm, that's where my spazziness comes from. But the part that I resonated with you on is, is like in my earlier life. So I'm trying to help college students. Uh, I was a Dean of theology at Colorado Christian university for a while. And it became very politically driven and I had a conflict with the administration and lost, lost my, uh, lost my house and we moved and, uh, it was pretty troubling, but to, to kind of loop back to your, your, your statement, once I got to the spot where I could lose my financial st security, but have that quiet peace within myself that began this new kind of journey. Um, but the thing that you said, I think is, is perfectly Christian also fits soundly with this text that we were having troubles with 
uh, 29, which is um, also what we're dealing with in the, the like our last full episode. That's what we're talking about this this week. I talked to a Muslim student, a gay student, um, and we we're talking about the way in which two the different students. two different students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, How, I was thinking gay Muslim yeah, student. Yeah, well, it's, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, you never know. Um, and uh, but we've, but we've, we've, especially in Christian education at the college level. I don't know, K through twelve is different, but at the college level, giving people a place to be, and s- slowing down with so many words because I've noticed this. You know, right? You, you could give them more; it's not going to change anything about them. But right, you, right. you being that model, um, that's chapter one, right? Like if you're trying to put the way into just a lot of talk that's that's the that's kind of um that's the backwards way you know we can talk about it afterwards why something worked or didn't work so i really appreciate that you're doing that um um briefly though i always have this fantasy of again like just going to another country just kind of cutting cutting loose now and and teaching english somewhere i think it's a really a a really great thing I, i like to talk to students about um, as an option, but, um, and of course I'm, I'm very much driven to those who have been abandoned, uh, abandoned the foundlings, um, whether they're orphans in the traditional sense, or, um, they have been that way because they were disowned by their parents or whatever. And, and this is a tough question that if, if you don't mind, I really do, I'd need somebody's help on it. I am unable to feel confident in orphanages in general. Um, the number of, uh, really unfortunate things that I've noticed, even going back to when I was in seventh grade and they were, we would go down to this, uh, we would go down to this orphanage in uh, Mexico, Baja, California, uh, every month. And all this work that we were doing, it turned out they were trafficking these kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. they're, they're often they, they weren't orphans. Their parents were, you know, they were working up in San Diego, sending money back down. Like, I don't understand what orphanages are from region to region. So um, maybe you don't know about the big picture, but what, what can you tell people, people who want to support these things, um, work with these organizations? What are we, what should we be looking out for so we can trust and engage in a profitable way? Yeah. Um, before I forget, I did think of an example of what we were talking about, like an illustration of how that ministry style worked. And so I'll share that with you. I think maybe after this, I think okay. it would be really helpful to put that in example. as well uh, as you were talking. But um, OK, yeah, it's a really there's been so much damage done. It's been a really corrupt or just. Yeah, there's been a lot of disgusting stuff with orphanages around the world and throughout history to the I mean, we don't actually use. We call it orphanage here because it's been here for 80 years, and that's what everyone calls it. My organization is Kids Alive International, and we have locations in 12 countries. They do not call them orphanage. It's children's homes, and we we actually, it's a residential program. So we have boys of about, we have apartment units with eight boys in with a house mom, kind of like a dorm situation. So they eat together, they watch movies, you know, that's their unit, that's their house mom. Um, and the organization has done a really good job of promoting, like doing great job of background checks and investigating and just making sure that things are being done above board. Uh, we have, we had, a, a scandal came to light, something that happened like eight years ago in another country, one of our locations 
and they like put out a big release. They contacted all of us staff and missionaries first. We didn't get a lot of details, but it was like, hey, this is going out. We're looking into this. Uh, we maintain full transparency and they do a great job of that. Um, my first day of training, I was told by the president of the entire organization that if we ever see anything like if there's ever any kind of allegations of abuse or anything like that, that is serious, he's on a plane and will be in that country within the next 24 hours. That is not common. That is really good to hear. Yeah. It was really amazing. Um, so, you know, and maybe it's not literally 20, like, but he, yeah. you know, the, the sentiment was, if there's a problem, I'm going to be there. Uh, so, I don't know, finding organizations that, I mean, it's, you have to do the hard work of knowing who you're giving to. And you really, I, I think giving to charity is great. I really think it's more biblical and just more, just more healthy spiritually and for everyone involved to give to places you have a relationship with. Right. On whatever level that looks like. I mean you're giving to world vision you know you can't know everybody in world vision but you should be familiar with what you know it's better for you to give to a place you know we always want to give to the big causes and we feel like our local causes are not worthy of the like for me okay all of my donors come from my community okay it's mm -hmm. not just random people giving me money you mean your hometown my, yeah my, in well, the States. my multiple hometowns my yeah. yes exactly so like they are in a sense giving to their community by giving to me who's doing the international work. But like, I don't know, that means a lot more to me than when I get a note that, Hey, an, a random anonymous donor, like gave to Lebanon missionaries. Like I, I think giving is spiritually formative for both parties mm. and probably more formative for the giver. Uh, so I would say, I mean, your, your question is like, what do you do if you want to give? Right. And what, yeah. I don't know, find, find a way to be giving um, either to someone, you know, or to like, for example, I mean, if you want to give to an organization or an orphanage overseas, like visit them first and make that connection because that will do more for your soul to know where your money's going and to be able to offer that. And not just to be like, hey, I'm just taking this random slice off the top of my paycheck that's going to some anonymous cause that's just a name that gets put on my tax returns at the end mm. of the year, you know? So you've got that connection you have and and you're and I, I like what you said earlier. You're looking for transparency. I think that's an obvious but important one. And you're looking for I, I think um especially growing up non-denominational, we do balk now being in a in more of a denominational setting there's a lot of d downside to that but there's also the the great upside of the uh, accountability network where you have people that are you know um boards of directors that are taking their job seriously um and th that they're they're on the record you know for the way they're they're doing this stuff and then when you visit when you have that relationship it's much easier for me to you know, if I were to, if, if I were contributing to what you're doing, I can check in with you and, you know, and, and by knowing what the needs are and also, you know, knowing, um, that I'm aligned with that, that feels good. It is. I like what you said, like there, there's a spiritual value in that. Whereas assuaging my conscience 
you know, find something, you know, find something that is, uh, you know, going to tug at my heartstrings, but I'm not going to really honor what the actual human experience is over there, either in this case, the students or you in the field that somehow almost is, you know, I'm sure you can appreciate the, the funding, but it is, it's just, it also sometimes can take us away from that mutuality. So I think that's a, that's a great answer. What, right. uh, everyone's what were you th- called to give, but everyone's called to give, but if there's a woman, if there's a single mom, three rows behind you in church who needs a $20 bill slipped in her Bible because she doesn't know how she's going to buy groceries that week or whatever. I mean, that's the kind of a cliche example, but like you should be giving to that before yeah. you're going out and trying to find a, an organization to give to. That's kind of how I see it. Yeah. So that's why I, I want my donors to be people I know. And I yeah. want them to be giving to me because they know that I have the need and I'm in their community um, and it becomes a great support system. So yeah, if you want to give, find, you know, don't set up those expectations again mm. of, Oh, I need to give to orphans in Africa or whatever, like right. find where your money, where your money can go, where it needs to go. Um, and make the people connections is what yes. I'm hearing, you know. I think the people connection is so important, mm. I think. Yeah. Um, not to say you can't give anonymously, but there has to be a connection there. You know, slipping the $20 bill in the Bible or I've had people who I know and then I found out later give to me anonymously, but they know me and they yeah. know it's, it's formative for the giver. Uh, I think on a much deeper level when you're giving because you know the person or you know the organization well. Um, you, said, you said you had a, uh, an example that came to mind. Yeah, so it's kind of along the same line, or kind of, so the older boy, here's the thing, these kids have been through trauma and have had all kinds of issues. They can be really terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never been so disrespected and poorly treated in my entire life as I have been in my fourth grade classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, just the kids who live here. I mean, really, I could tell you stories after story and I'm very uh, able to roll with it now and just go with the flow. They, that's another reason the Tao Te Ching's been so helpful because, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they, you can just, they can be very hurtful if you let them, if you think it's about you mm-hmm. and you can't realize, oh, this is a lot about what's going on with them. Um, one of the most important things is to like, maintain like be a non-anxious presence right and to kind of work the long slow path of like okay this kid's been through trauma and it's it's not going to fix the problem if i just come down with strong uh negative reinforcement of any kind it just it that never goes well it just explodes um and so i really again i'm very relational and so when kids are being terrible like hard because you don't always have the time but you'd be like okay hey we need to talk about this like what's going on like do you need a minute to calm down like that's really great when you have the time to do it and when you don't you fail and you scream at them as I've done too many times but uh but so with I've been doing this with the younger boys a lot and they had been really terrible to me and uh one of those older teen boys who had seeing the way I was interacting with him and his friends in terms of just kind of letting, just being with them, having fun with them, like building those relationships. 
and then like like he had seen the way the younger boys had been treating me once i mean we're talking like pretty bad i mean they weren't hitting me but they were coming up and trying to grab things out of my hands that i was like that they shouldn't like basically i was keeping the football from them uh, the soccer ball from them and something else and uh they're literally just pulling on them because i was trying to be like guys you need to stop punching and slapping each other over a football game. So I'm going to hold this ball. And they came up there fighting me for it. He walked up. And and the thing is, the younger boys will listen to the older boys who live here more than they'll listen to the staff a lot of the times because they've been here their whole lives. And he walked up and pushed them away from me and started screaming at them. What is wrong with you? You need to show some respect for him. He's here. He loves you. He's He's work. He's here to serve you guys, and all, and he starts saying all the stuff that I wish I could tell them. Like, yeah, I gave up everything I had to come here and live mm-hmm. here and serve you guys, mm-hmm. and like now you're treating me like garbage. And like, but he said it all, mm-hmm. and the reason that he stood up for me and he intervened was because I had been that very loud to just like living, like, as you said, um, just living, uh, the example. And it's kind of that idea of like, that's as Latsu says, like, that's the strongest force in the universe is this attractional nature of the, you don't need to preach it. You just model it. And then I don't really love the way in which he stood up for me. Mm -hmm. Um, it was pretty aggressive, but the fact that he was catching into that and saying like, and then he came up to me the next week, he's like, the one thing I notice about you more than anything else is you are so patient. Mm. I can't imagine how patient, like you should be slapping. You need to just slap them in the face. <laughs> like, and I mean, that's normal in the culture, like yeah. physical yeah. abuse mm. from parents is very normal. He's like, I just, I don't know how you do it. And he was just blown away. And I'm like, well, trust me, you don't see the times I have lost my temper. Mm. Uh, but it was really, really cool to see that what could easily be perceived as weakness. And I would say for me often feels like, am I just being weak here? Like by trying to do this, the soft way. Yeah. And it it feels like man, like so many, especially the traditional disciplinarians here, I'm like, they must be looking at me and think I'm so weak and soft. And I just kind of let them walk all over me. And he recognized it for what it is mm-hmm. and actually called it out to me in ways. I He gave me some examples of things that I hadn't even seen. And he's like, you were patient here and here and here. And I'm like, wow, like, that's cool that <laughs> in a culture, I mean, he's from a home where if he does something wrong, he's going to get beat up. And that's what he thinks discipline is. And that's why he told me you should be beating these kids. Like mm-hmm. he was serious. He wasn't joking. Yeah, no, right. uh, And he recognized that, that patience and that, that Taoist way of approaching the discipline, if you want to call it that was stronger than the physical discipline. And then he stood up for me. Um, and that was really cool. So, 
that's it, man. That's the yin medicine. That's what, that's it. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, and this is why I said there's, there's no, you know, uh, people misunderstand me, but I say, you know, I'd say like, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're just atheist, Jesus, the way of Jesus is the only solution to Palestine, Israel. It's the only solution to the, the chaos in the Middle East. If by this, we mean not taking that way of, you know, you know, doubling down on the yang, if we want to say it that way, right? I mean, this is the yin medicine. This is that that power in a creative transformation, which I think also your story can maybe help deal with the the struggle we had with that, you know, five and twenty nine, which is at least from a Christian perspective, the way of Jesus does take an inner strength, and I think that that student knows this, is Mr. Corey. <laughs> maybe he should hit the kids, but this isn't coming from a position of weakness. This is a, this is a deeper reservoir of strength. And that is, uh, you know, from our, from our vantage point, listening in as best we can to your show as uh, something we, uh, I think we picked up pretty quickly that, um, that you've got that. I mean, really appreciate, appreciating this. Um, one, one thing I was going to ask before we, we close it out, um, is, uh, of all, of all of the, the chapters, did you have a like your favorite chapter and why mm. from the Tao Te Ching? I looked over, yeah, because I, I went through your questions uh, yesterday and today, trying to find a favorite. I mean, it's like they're all they <laughs> so many cool bits and pieces. Um, I had said I had written down either twenty two or twenty nine. Let, let me see here. Uh, I really love twenty two. <laughs> That's funny. I love twenty two, and it literally is exactly what like it's kind of at the heart of that story I was just telling. So let's, mm. let's do it then. Let's read 22 now. Yeah. yeah. Um, and by the way, I don't tell that story to brag about myself. No, no. Uh, I, I'm sure that's, I hope that's coming through. But oh, absolutely. Anyway. absolutely. Sometimes we need, especially as, you know, educators or whatever, sometimes we need to say, all right, these are the things we did wrong. These are the things that, that helped us win. I can't remember, Stacey, which is the chapter, maybe you know, Corey, um, there's no difference between winning and losing because we, we kind of learn oh, from both. You know, that's, that's in somewhere, right? But that, uh, and then that's something that comes up in a lot of the, uh, the Zen Buddhists as well, where they'll tell these stories. And um, the illustration is, you think some calamity befell you, like seminary didn't work out exactly the way you wanted. And all of a sudden you've stumbled onto something that's really helpful and healing. I mean, I, I don't know how much uh, feedback, but I mean, you get, but there's, there's, um, uh, there's a uh, higher monk Damascene who did that, uh, the Tao of the Tao of Christ was it, or is it the Christ, Christ, the eternal Tao? Um, and then Marshall. So like, I would put that as like, there's the Eastern Orthodox version and there's the um, there's the uh, you know uh, the kind of more progressive uh, kind of mainline uh, liberal version of Marshall Davis. Both of those really helpful for me. But what was really helpful because of my context is to turn students on as I've been slowly kind of jumping into this to your work because one of the reasons we think that there's a value in going through the chapters like we're doing with the podcast, both of us, or in our case, the bold, and we'll explain it some other time to defend ourselves, trying to yet another rendition of it is because that's kind of the, to me, that's kind of the joke. Everyone, everyone thinks the real, everyone thinks the joke is that, you know, the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. So why don't you shut up there? And the answer is, um, just like Christianity has to be, tra it's a translated thing. It's translated because of those relationships you're talking about without the relationship, then those words just become these abstract principles that then lose their, their touch. And so, 
So for me, when I'm talking to students, I'm saying, if you listen to Corey's podcast, this may not be what you need if you're going to get an A in my uh, Chinese uh, philosophy uh, and politics class later, right? Um, uh, for anarchy in Lao Tzu or, or statecraft or, or libertarianism, whatever, whatever those themes would be, go find a commentary. But if you want to under, understand it, you know what I'm saying, really understand it, you've got to have somebody that at least has a few words that you would understand because of your shared context. So I want to, uh, before, before you read what you got there, I, I really do want to reaffirm that I, I know your spirit. I know that I don't know you that well at all, but I know that, that what you're saying is, is what we need to do is to share those, um, those ways that have worked so that people can then practice it in their own lives. And the more we, we see this, you know, that's of course how students learn. Uh, but so t- uh, t- 22, uh, 25, you were saying 22, 22. 22 yeah. Good. I'm glad it's coming through because I yeah. do feel I do feel not the the most clear headed and eloquent tonight. It's three a.m. right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Sorry, we'll let you go. Uh, yeah. We'll see. No problem. No problem. <laughs> and it's your chapter birthday. Yeah. yeah. Um, chapter twenty two. I'm just going to read it from Stephen Mitchell, and do it's it. just so funny to me that this really ties into that story really well. But uh, it says if you want to become whole let yourself be partial. If you want to become straight, let yourself be crooked. If you want to become full, let yourself be empty. If you want to be reborn, let yourself die. If you want to be given everything, give everything up. The master, by residing in the Tao, sets an example for all beings. Because he doesn't display himself, people can see his light. Because he has nothing to prove, people can trust his words. Because he doesn't know who he is, people recognize themselves in him. Because he has no goad in his mind, everything he does succeeds. When the ancient masters said, if you want to be given everything, give everything up, they weren't using empty phrases. Only in being lived by the Tao can you truly be yourself. I love that one. You could chapter twenty two. That makes it like we planned this perfectly. Yeah. We weren't. We weren't like kind of scrambling through uh, some post Christmas uh, busyness. That is. That's the right answer, probably. If there's an answer, that is beautiful, especially in that one. That was the one we were listening to. Uh, we were listening to Stephen uh, Marshall um, as we were uh, traveling. And then we've we've been in so many other more like you know uh, other commentaries and things that we haven't probably gone back to it enough. But that was that was so perfect to the story, and it brings it brings the whole thing around. Thank you so much. If people want to yeah. uh, follow you, they go to coreyfar.com, right? And you c o r e y f a r r dot com. You're also a musician, and then the podcast that you can get on in your podcast platforms is a Christian reads the Tao Te Ching. Yes. Anything else that people can tie into to follow you? Um, yeah, I mean, I've got Facebook, Corey Farr yeah, you can spell. is, uh, at real Corey Farr. Cause I just <laughs> had to, I just had to get into the, you know, I mean, I just thought it was so ridiculous to see real Donald Trump. So I just, that's good. We love it. So, so to you, uh, best, uh, best to you this yes, new year absolutely. and to those students and, uh, hang in there with what's going on. And uh, thank you so much. And Stacy, to the listeners, we wish everyone this time like the angels. Deep peace upon peace.
much, friends, for joining us for this episode of Protect Your Noggin Podcast. Want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on this show. You can record a voice message by going to protectyournoggin.org. That's protectyournoggin.org. You can also find show notes and other resources there on our site. Uh, we also invite you to follow us on Twitter at the P-Y-N-P. Again, that's at the P-Y-N as in Nancy, P. Please rate us on Twitter and, and tell a friend if this episode was helpful to you. Until next time, we wish you peace upon peace. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter low too much.